Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Joe. And today we are thrilled to have John Brennan joining us. A leading expert in national security, intelligence, and counterterrorism, John Brennan served as director of the Central Intelligence Agency from March 2013 to January 2017. Brennan began his 25-year tenure at the CIA in 1980. Fluent in Arabic, Brennan specialized in Middle Eastern affairs and counterterrorism. Brennan returned to public service in 2009 and served as assistant to the president for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism, where he advised President Obama on counterterrorism strategies and helped coordinate the U.S. government's approach to Homeland Security. He is, Brennan currently is a distinguished fellow at the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and a distinguished scholar at the University of Texas, uh, te University of Texas at Austin. Um, he also serves as a national security analyst for NBC and N MSNBC and a consultant slash advisor to a variety of private sector companies. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Brandon. Sure, Sabrina. It's good to be here. So we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Do you think you can share a moment with us? Well, when I think back over my professional career, um, I think there were several inflection points. One that I think about is the first time I visited the Oval Office uh, back in 1991, uh, George W. Bush, where you know, I, I realized that a kid from New Jersey found himself in the White House and Oval Office speaking to the most powerful person in the world. And I had been at the agency for about a dozen years, almost a dozen years at that point, but there was something very special about that moment that made me really want to continue to pursue my career with some vigor, um, and it made me understand just how consequential my views and what I would say could be. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I sort of you know, marked my career from, from that point that really put me, I think, on a path to uh, do some things that I, I never thought I would have the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. And so I guess then to back it up a little bit and get back to your biography to a certain degree, um, you went to college during the Watergate era. Obviously, it was a disheartening time. Um, could you speak a little bit, a bit about how that informed your college experience, your worldview more generally, and sort of how that influences how, what you view the world today? Well, I remember when President Nixon resigned, I was on my way back from Indonesia. I spent the okay. summer in Indonesia. My cousin was a food for peace officer at the U.S. Embassy there. And so I was watching a lot of those last days of Richard Nixon from abroad. Mm -hmm. And I also watched the Indonesians just you know, observe what was going on in the United States with great fascination mm -hmm. because they really looked to the United States as a great example of democracy and things that they aspired to. Uh, so it really helped me put into context the United States in terms of its global role and responsibilities, but also how individuals abroad looked upon the United States for uh, as a role model in terms mm -hmm. of what a, a, a democracy you know, should be capable of doing. Mm. And so on, on that same point, do you think um, there was a, you could point to a specific moment where you were motivated or inspired perhaps to join um, public service and in particular the CIA or how did that journey from college and this momentous mo moment or turn into this two almost two decades and a half worth mm -hmm. of um, your career in the CIA? Well, um, in addition to being in Indonesia for a summer, I also went to school in Cairo, Egypt uh, mm. during my junior year abroad. And I think that instilled in me a wanderlust that I wanted to learn about this 
big, wonderful world. And so wanted to be able to have some professional path that would enable me to, to travel and even live abroad. Mm. And so uh, I had that interest in the world. And uh, so, in fact, I saw a advertisement for the, in the New York Times for the CIA. Mm. And so I you know, sent in my application. And I saw that the CIA would allow me to do two things. One is to learn more about the world, but secondly also to be involved in public service. Um, I'm the son of an immigrant. My father would always tell me mm. that I need to give back to this great country, mm. um, what it has provided me. Uh, and so I found that uh, joining the CIA uh, allowed me to help out in a small way uh, on the national security front. Uh, so uh, the CIA uh, was a was wonderful t to me for my first 25 years, and I think it did prepare me then for my subsequent um, opportunities in the Obama administration to first be President Obama's assistant at the White House, but then to lead the women and men of CIA. Mm -hmm. And could you speak a little bit about your experiences as sort of a first-year analyst or even just in those first years, sort of what was most disheartening when you were coming out of college through those experiences, what you were appreciated most about the CIA in those first few years? Well, when I first started at CIA, you know, I thought I had developed the uh, writing skills and, and other skills that would allow me to do well at the agency. And what I realized was that I had a lot to learn. And so one of the great things about CIA was I was able to be mentored by individuals who had a lot of experience in terms of analytic skills and tradecraft and, and writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and also it allowed me to see behind the curtain about what's going on around the world. Up until then, I was just reading things in newspapers and magazines, but having access to classified information really opened up a, a whole new horizon for me that, uh, again, gave me insight into not just what's going on around the world, but the challenges that the United States faces, faces in dealing with a lot of those uh, regions of the world and issues. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Brandon, when you left um, the CIA, that was a little after the Bush administration. Um, what, made, what, motivate, what motivated you to end your time at the CIA and how different do you think were your experience? Oh, I'm sure it's different, but um, what were those differences that you experienced working in the private sector, especially with this idea of giving back to the country? Well, yes, I retired in 2005 during the administration, during the Bush administration. It was after 25 years, so I was eligible to retire. Mm. And so I decided that I would go into the private sector and see what it was like to earn a living outside of the appropriations of Congress. And so it uh, worked uh, in a Northern Virginia area. I was the president CEO of a company that was supporting the intelligence and law enforcement mm. communities. So it allowed me to see much more intimately the role of the private sector and how it is so important to our national security and a lot of the government agencies um, that are involved in it. Um, so you know, there are many differences. Um, so I was glad I was indirectly supporting the national security mission, but I, I still felt as though my government service was incomplete. Mm -hmm. um, I, I left at that point um, in the Bush administration because I felt that I had done some important things, but wanted to move on. But when I had the opportunity to come back into government under uh, President Barack Obama, I jumped at that opportunity. I liked the, the work in the private sector. I got to meet some very good people. I learned an awful lot. And I was also able to bring some of those lessons in the private sector back into the government, particularly when I became director of CIA, mm. because there are similarities in between leadership of a government organization and also the private sector. Mm. And so then, 
obviously that transition going from the CIA to the private sector would be challenging insofar as people's understandings, I guess, of what you did for the CIA. And so I guess building on that sort of uh, context, what would you say is one thing you wish every American understood about the CIA that you feel they don't today? Well, I think there are a lot of misimpressions about the CIA. The CIA is not a rogue organization. You know, we, we don't decide you know, to do things just because we think it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. When the CIA is involved in uh, activities overseas, whether it's collection of intelligence or whether it is covert action, these are things that are all duly authorized, either embedded in statute uh, that uh, allows the CIA to do this, or that is directed by a president. So the CIA, again, does not just go off on its own and mm -hmm. decide to do these things. Uh, and so I, I do think that there's a misimpression that, you know, the CIA is, you know, sort of doing its own um, thing overseas. Um, but also the tremendous sacrifices that CIA officers make, both those who are deployed overseas as well as those who work at uh, CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And a lot of, of sacrifices are made, both in terms of being away from their families or, or being in harm's way. You know, the memorial wall at, in CIA's uh, lobby um, has you know scores of stars that um, that represent all the women and men of CIA who paid the last measure of you know full devotion to this country and so uh, a, there are a lot of, of risks a lot of challenges um, that go along with uh, intelligence work and so I was very proud to be part of that organization and I think that uh, unfortunately there's a lot of things that are out there in the in the media mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. misrepresent what the CIA has done right. unfortunately there's you know a lot of untruths that are out there yes the CIA has made mistakes and i think the CIA has learned from those mistakes but the CIA has saved countless lives uh, over the course of its 70 plus years history mm -hmm. so mr brandon you talked about being proud of being part of the CIA and rightfully so but i was wondering if you had you there was a moment of um, a more, was there like a moment where you felt was your proudest personal achievement during the times, I mean, you've lived through a lot of historical events and you were closely involved in making sure that America and its people were protected. But was, do you, is there a point or a story that you could share with us that was more of a personal achievement? Well, I, I don't think I can point to a personal achievement. What I can talk, <laughs> what I can point to, though, is being a part of um, efforts that really made a difference. Uh, I was President Obama's assistant for counterterrorism when the Bin Laden raid was conducted. Mm -hmm. So that iconic photo uh, showing you know President Obama along with others in you know in the White House Situation Room. Um, I am in that photo, mm -hmm. and I was part of a team at that time. And that's one of the things that I learned throughout my career that um, you know, being part of a broader effort to try to keep our fellow citizens safe and doing your part, uh, there are no individual heroes, although maybe individual heroes on the, on the battlefield. Mm. Um, but I really felt as though I was uh, fortunate to be involved in different um, activities um, on the counterterrorism front, uh, on the Homeland Security front, um, at CIA, in terms of some of the things that I was able to do along with others. Um, I, I was part of an effort to reorganize the CIA. Mm -hmm. um, I was tapped by President Bush to set up what is the National Counterterrorism Center to create an agency basically from scratch. But mm -hmm. I worked with some others from the intelligence community in that effort. So 
you know, I, I, I don't want to pat myself on the back for these individual accomplishments at all. It is because yeah. I was, I had the great opportunity to be part of a team mm. that I think made a positive difference on the national security front. Mm -hmm. And so I guess um, building on that somewhat, uh, we've had some past interviewers who've worked in the administration. Samantha Power was here um, some weeks ago, and we had asked her about sort of a situation where she had to disagree with the president or felt disagreement with the president and how she sort of went about that. So I guess for you, could you speak to any situations like that um, and sort of how you handled them? Well, I'd be hard pressed to think about um, areas where I disagree with President Obama. There were some things, um, for example, the intervention in Libya. Mm -hmm. I, I had my own views um, at that time. Um, I was in the uh, administration of Bush, of the President George W. Bush, mm -hmm. you know, the invasion of Iraq. I, I was never in favor of that. I thought it was uh, misguided. Um, but, you know, I was at CIA at the time. I was doing other things. I was helping to stand up the National Counterterrorism Center, so I focused on my job. Um, but I think uh, individuals, particularly those who are close to a president, have a responsibility to speak up um, as part of that deliberative process. Mm -hmm. And so there were maybe some individual times <laughs> uh, in my discussions with President Obama when we had some differences of view. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I tend to keep some of those confidences uh, to myself. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Not to turn um, this question a little too political, but do you think, um, I was wondering if you could share a little more about your thoughts on American democracy today and how you see the development of this country or like the direction it's moving towards and if you had some insights or fear or concerns even about what you see in America today. Well, I think there are, there are two dimensions to that. One is on the domestic front and I think it's very, very unfortunate that we have such dysfunction in Washington mm. and such polarization within our country mm. and it's clear that we do. And um, I think it is uh, certainly impeding our ability as a government to address some really important issues that are out there, yeah. health care mm -hmm. and, and other issues. Yeah. And that, that, that partisan bickering and the acrimony that is taking place right now, I think, is very, very unfortunate. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, that uh, Donald Trump has helped to fuel that polarization. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I've been speaking out. But also on the international front, um, this country has led the way for the world since World War II. We have been that shining light on the mm -hmm. hill that by our example, uh, in terms of our adherence to democratic principles mm -hmm. and liberties and freedoms, I think we have been the ro role model for a lot of folks. But also we were had foreign engagement that I think was not just in our own national security interests, but in the global interests. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think the United States now, under this administration, Trump administration, is receding from a lot of those global responsibilities. I think the mantra of America first, America first, is being heard by so many people around the world that you know, the United States is going to pursue a winning strategy. It's gonna come at the expense of other countries, and we're going to use our tremendous might in order to advance our interests at the expense of others. So I, I do have concerns both on the domestic political front mm -hmm. as well as on the international front that the direction we're heading in is counterproductive to our broader longer-term interests. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping we're going to be able to get on a better track both domestically so that we're not going to be so polarized 
um, as well as internationally, so that we are able to fulfill our, I think, very important global responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And could you speak then a little bit, I guess, to the intelligent community consensus on the president? How do people feel generally about him? And is there even a consensus or views less homogenous than that? You could speak to that. I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I haven't done any type of a survey of it. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, the intelligence community is a microcosm of American society. And yeah. I'm sure that there are views that, you know, are representative, you know, of throughout American society, some that I'm sure are very you know, strongly supportive of mm -hmm. Donald Trump, you know, his approach to governance as well as, you know, his policies. And I'm also sure that there are those who are opposed. But one of the most important things for intelligence community officials mm -hmm. is to carry out their responsibilities. Uh, oblivious to those political machinations mm -hmm. that are out there as well as um, devoid of any type of partisan you know objective or, uh, mm -hmm. or leaning so um, my hope is that my former colleagues in the intelligence community are continuing to carry out their responsibilities in an apolitical nonpartisan fashion mm -hmm. because it's critically important to our national security that they do so mm -hmm. Mr. Brennan you're it's I've from what my understanding you're in the process of writing a memoir um, that's due sometime this year, maybe next year. Um, and I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about what prompted your decision to write such a piece and if there were, if you could give us like a snapshot highlight of what are the key takeaways you hope people would be able to get from reading this memoir of yours? Well, who knows if the memoir is actually going to be <laughs> written or published or whatever, but <laughs> you know, I, I served for over 33 years in the government and I had tremendous, tremendous opportunities that were given to me, uh, working overseas, working in Washington, um, working in the White House, director of CIA. I was a witness to so much history. And so um, I, I think that, again, there's a lot of misrepresentations of what the CIA was involved in or what I was involved in. And so what I'd like to be able to do is not just provide a, a historical record of, of some of the things that uh, I was mm -hmm. uh, participant in, but also to lend my perspective, um, you know, how I view things, uh, how I saw developments um, you know, happen, mm -hmm. uh, and also to give my perspective about some of the main challenges that face this country. And there are so many of them, whether you're talking about the continued challenge of, you know, of China, uh, mm -hmm. Russia, um, the digital domain and all of the things that are related to the, the cyber uh, concerns that we have. Um, the U.S. role in the world. So again, I've been very fortunate over the course of my career to have uh, seen so many things and be a, a party to so many things that uh, I just would like to be able to share that with some others. And if they want to read it, uh, if mm -hmm. they want to uh, agree or disagree, that's, that's their uh, prerogative. Definitely. And I guess then to sort of take us to some more international questions and just to hear about your views more generally, what do you see today as the biggest security threat to the United States, and do you think the United States is prepared to handle it? Well, I am concerned that in that digital domain that there, there are so many opportunities, obviously, mm -hmm. to continue to advance our security and prosperity, but there's also, it's an arena where there are a lot of malactors, and mm -hmm. whether you're talking about nation states that are trying to interfere in our elections, or whether right. you're talking about terrorist organizations or others that are trying to take advantage of this worldwide web. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think this country has come to grips with what we need to do in order to enhance the security, the reliability, the safeguards within that environment. 
And so I think we need some um, changes in our legal frameworks. Mm -hmm. um, we need to have, I think, a, a better consensus in this country about what's the role of the government in a domain that is owned and operated 85% by the private sector. Mm. And so I think there are a lot of things that can happen in that digital environment that really can threaten um, our future security and prosperity. So um, I think that's the one area that uh, I still have a lot of concerns about mm. in terms of the future. Mr. Brennan, despite all the things that we're seeing in unfolding in the world today, um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what keeps you hopeful. Well, you know, I, I tend when I when I speak to to point out all the challenges that we have <laughs> out there and some of the the threats and the risks to our our future, which is sort of typical for an intelligence officer. <laughs> I remember Bob Gates, former director of CIA and former Secretary of Defense, he has a, a famous quote by saying, "You know, if an intelligence official smells flowers, he looks around for the casket." <laughs> um, so, um, what why I'm hopeful? Well, first of all, I believe very strongly in the the resilience of of this country. Uh, you know, this is the world's greatest country, and I do think we're going to get back on track, both domestically and internationally, soon. But also every day there is some scientific um, wonder or some engineering development or, or some medical breakthrough. Um, and it's clear that our lives around the world continue to get better. A and so th I think the, the trajectory of, of mankind is uh, on, an, on an upward path. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're going to have you know, dips here and there and that we have to deal with these challenges. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think the, the human mind is, is one that has almost limitless potential as far as how to cope with some of these challenges and deal with these issues. Uh, and I think if any country is going to be able to make a difference in the future of the world, mm -hmm. it's this country. Uh, and I do hope that, again, our political environment is going to be more conducive to addressing these problems in a, in a more unified fashion. Mm -hmm. And so I guess then to take you back some years, and if you could sort of put yourself in your shoes as a college senior and you could go back in time and sort of tell yourself something, leave yourself some message from what you've learned over the past few years, what do you think that could be? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, I would uh, tell myself, um, you know, reach for the stars. Mm -hmm. uh, when I started at the CIA in 1980, I never dreamed that I would be director of CIA one day. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, you know, maybe reaching for the stars is not the right way to look at it. Um, making sure that throughout the course of, of my career, and I'd say others as well, try to make sure that you maintain your focus on your North Star in terms of you know your ethical North Star and, mm -hmm. and making sure you're able to Continue to do what you think is right, not which is politically expedient mm -hmm. or what might be personally advantageous. Uh, but I, I do believe strongly that uh, you know, in in most instances, uh, the the right path is is obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think too many people uh, opt for taking the the wrong path mm -hmm. uh, again for you know various reasons. But when I look back on my career, um, I was very fortunate to work with and for some people that I, I really did respect, and I tried to emulate them. And so I think I would tell you know, somebody who is just starting off in their career, as you go through your professional journey, uh, look at those people, look at those mm. issues uh, that uh, you can learn from. 
and uh, try not to repeat the mistakes that you might see others make, mm -hmm. but try to follow in the footsteps of those people that you believe are on that right path and are making a positive difference in others' lives. Mm -hmm. So for our last question, Mr. Brennan, I was wondering if you had, or if after these so many years of experience, if you had, if you could summarize um, to us what your personal definition of success is and how college students or younger youths in general can think about how they should find, how they can think about what success means to them. Well, uh, you know, there's success has obviously many definitions and <laughs> you know, I do believe that there is something in terms of personal and professional success. To me, success is not measured by you know, one's bank account. Mm -hmm. um, success in, in my mind is being able to accomplish the things that you set out to do, um, but also, again, having a, a positive influence and making a positive difference in the lives of people you touch, mm -hmm. whether it's your family, a mm. spouse, your children, your parents, whether it's your coworkers, the people who work for you, that you work for, being able to keep focused on how you're going to, again, make a, a, a positive difference in the world around you and mm. not just think about your own personal success. Mm. Um, touching others' lives, uh, doing what you think is right, um, and looking back then at your life, and you know, I have a lot of, of critics and that they're <laughs> they certainly yeah. are entitled to their, their criticisms. But you know, I look back on my life, yes, I've made mistakes, but I'd like to think that you know, from a personal professional standpoint, I try to do things at least that you know, would help others, um, would maybe make others you know, safer. Um, and also maybe help develop others who are going to follow in my footsteps or you know, younger officers at mm -hmm. CIA and other places that may have benefited from their interaction experiences with me. So again, success is having leaving an imprint mm -hmm. on others and on your environment that, again, advances um, you know, the, the good causes of, of, of others. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Mr. Brennan, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs> Thanks, Brennan. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.